I'm recording now, by the way. Oh, God. <laughs> I know what the opening is going to be. You know, that little I have nothing. <laughs> I have nothing to contribute. Welcome to episode seven. My name is Kenny Koo. I'm Laura Ruffite. I'm Sherry Ketty. And Selena Everling. And today we're just recapping on the talk that uh, Monica Tomlinson gave at the last HALA meeting on mindfulness. Uh, so I hope everyone has a chance to listen to it. It's episode six, you can go back to it. So what do we think about the presentation? I thought it was a great presentation. I really liked Monica as a speaker. Um, I thought she was very good at articulating what mindfulness is and how you can bring it into your own practice. Yeah, I, I think it, to me it's, uh, it was very related to like the stoicism conversation we had previously. Uh, there's a lot of people struggle with you know everyday life events, and mindfulness is a very for me. It felt like a really good tool in your toolbox to how to cope with certain situations. So I, I thought it was a great kind of a overall summary, especially to introduce people on the topic of mindfulness. And also like the various applications of how she's used of different groups throughout her practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Selena, going into uh, occupational therapy, I feel like uh, she'll potentially have uh, unique interests in the topic, uh, working with people, and how she can incorporate that into her future practice and her career. Yeah. I know you've talked about it before. I have. I mean, because mental health is like a huge thing, regardless if you have, you know, um, like mental illness or any kind of physical illness. I feel like mindfulness is just so applicable and everything we do, and especially with occupational therapy, really focused on like a meaningful life, and mindfulness also being really focused on a meaningful life. The two, I feel like, complement each other quite well. So, if I, just to recap, uh, what mindfulness is and how it helps with that, I'll do my best. Uh, so, basically, I guess the idea is that um, people who are struggling with different pains or uh, different life events or different patterns of negative thought, by using a mindful approach to to uh, a mind, uh by by putting those thoughts through a, a mindful filter a uh, filter in which you recognize there are the the thoughts arising and then there's a space in between the thought and the way it has to affect you um, allows people to not be held captive by simply held captive by their negative thoughts and to choose more freely uh, how they want to be responding to to those thoughts. Yeah, and to me, you know, recognizing thoughts that might pop into your head, they're they're just thoughts, right? They're not a reflection of you. It's not a judgment. I think she mentioned a few times, mm-hmm. you know, there's, it's a non-judgmental thing where, uh, you know, whatever thought pops into your head, it's not a judgment on yourself. It doesn't reflect you. Well, I, I think it's so much that the thought isn't isn't necessarily a truth. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that although your thoughts often are judgmental, I think I think part of the goal is to be non-judgmental. Judgment, right. So so often, you know, like I think one of the examples she gave was uh, it's raining instead of going, oh, the weather is so terrible right now. You could just more acknowledge, huh, it's raining uh, without as you're supposed to be removing that judgment or value assessment and just acknowledge it for what it is. I find we often get into behavioral feedback loops. So like the rain example, it's raining outside. So you say, oh, it's raining. I feel so awful about this. So then your mood is affected by that. And then everything that you do during that day, it's kind of gets encompassed into that mood. Yeah. 
Yeah, and she also mentioned that apparently while you're in more positive moods, your tolerance for pain and, and uh, enduring, your ability to endure through suffering is also increased. And I don't think it's about being like chipper all the time. Like, right. of course, we're going to have negative moods. You go through things like grief and anger and, and all these emotions. But mindfulness is about acknowledging that those emotions are there and not allowing and allowing your reaction to be different to them than a negative reaction. We did have a few questions from the members that were left from the last uh, meeting. So that's great. Thank you to all of the members who did leave some questions. Those were awesome for helping us to form our discussion around that. Always leave questions. If you have them, write them down, put them in the ballot box. It helps us a lot. Or email it to us. Ooh. We have a contact form on our website, <laughs> humanistagenda.com. But yes, what were some of those questions? By the All right, so let's start going through some of the questions. We have number one, which was, how does mindfulness relate to emotional intelligence? So I looked up emotional intelligence on Google <laughs> to get my own little definition. So uh, Google says, it is the capacity to be aware of, control, and express one's emotions, and to handle interpersonal relationships judiciously and empathetically. So I think a lot of emotional intelligence is related to mindfulness, uh, which was the question. So uh, I read an article on CNN that said it's about having an awareness of how your emotions drive your decisions and behaviors so you can effectively engage with and influence others, which is what mindfulness is doing. You're trying to change your reactions to your emotions so that you can engage with people mindfully and not be affected by situations. Something that is interesting to me just hearing you say that is whenever I think of emotional intelligence, I think of it as being something that you're, it's kind of like a base quality of you, like something you're born with. So, you know, just kind of like intelligence. I know, I know this is probably a controversial statement because I'm not actually sure where the science falls on this, but uh, when I typically think of intelligence, I, I think of it as being something that is innate, where education is more what is learned. Um, and obviously you can grow your intelligence through education and, and maybe they'll both kind of grow together. But, but yeah, it's weird because I, I've always thought mindfulness as being more like a practice or something that you can learn, um, like something that anyone can learn, where emotional intelligence, some people just don't have a very good emotional intelligence. There's actually like kind of mixed literature. Like there's clearly a relation between mindfulness and emotional intelligence, but it seems to be a little bit unclear of like what that relation is. So if you read some articles, they're saying that mindfulness actually like builds emotional intelligence. So kind of like you were saying with other forms of intelligence where studying and education build that. And then there's other articles that say without emotional intelligence, mindfulness doesn't work. Hmm. Which kind of more implies that you hmm. kind of need that base emotional intelligence to really get the like full use out of mindfulness practices. Yeah. So you're thinking like emotional intelligence, uh, that's not a learned trait. It's not yeah. something you can acquire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how but, I would think of yeah. it. I, I'm sure that, that it's not entirely the case, but, yeah. but that's my initial thought about it. Yeah, probably, probably there's uh, some kind of like base level E. Uh, is it EQ? Yeah, usually, yeah. yeah. Uh, so some base level, but really, uh, you could maybe in, increase it to a certain amount. But if you're, are you talking about IQ or something separate? Or, or like emotional intelligence? Is that called EQ or is that? Or is that I think it's EQ, but I don't yeah. know. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Emotional intelligence. Uh, maybe that. I wonder if people just have like a uh, like a 
a base level, but you could maybe, you know, go plus minus right. a certain amount. That'd be my thought as well. So it'd be interesting then, uh, like with what Selena just mentioned, how if there was some value, so let's say your base five uh, emotional intelligence and it's on a scale of one to ten and, and you need at least six for mindfulness to be effective or for you to be able to, to practice mindfulness um, successfully, right? Um, perhaps someone with base five would be able to train on, uh, in, in attempted mindfulness and to, to be able to get up to six on their emotional intelligence to be able to get use out of it where somebody who is just one on the scale of emotional intelligence to begin with can practice mindfulness all they want and although they might go up to two or three they'll never actually see the fruits of that practice i'm more of a nurture versus nature person as a teacher i think that that's how i'm like <laughs> bred to be yeah but i really truly believe that you can learn emotional intelligence and develop it. i think a lot of people learn it when they're younger and i think that maybe like through parenting we can teach our children how to be emotionally intelligent so so are you assuming that anyone could could use mindfulness it's to a, to a similar degree of effectiveness yeah okay I think given the correct tools. So like somebody who maybe, you know, as a kid learned a lot of emotional intelligence and had that nurturing could use it a lot more effectively. Whereas somebody who didn't have that nurturing maybe needs to build up that emotional right. intelligence before they can use it at quite as effectively. Okay. But it I, I feel, sorry. I, I feel like uh, maybe I'm a little more pessimistic. I feel like some people who just can't help. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's a wrong thing to think about, but it's just, uh, I don't know. Some, even with like IQ and EQ, I feel like there's certain people, sometimes it just seems like it's impossible no matter how much you... To build that awareness. To build that like, awareness. They just can't... But like, I feel like so much of mindfulness practices was trying to build the awareness. Like I'd like to think that a lot of people who you interact with who seem like they have no emotional intelligence, just a lack of caring, a lack of awareness. But if they're maybe more aware... Well, let's drill right down into this, okay? So if we think about what is mindfulness or what is actually contained in the mindfulness practice, let, let's isolate what those things are and then let's think about the person with the lowest level of emotional intelligence we can, like let's say Trump, okay? <laughs> and imagine, are these things literally inaccessible to Trump or, 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 or what is that? So, so what are the elements of, of mindfulness? Uh, Selena? Uh, well, acknowledging and accepting, you know, your feelings without instantly reacting to them. And I think we can all agree that Trump is a very... Reactionary uh, person. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so so, it, so do you think that that is entirely out of his control? I mean, obviously, he, he's probably also choosing not to improve on that because he doesn't see an issue with it, but... He probably has so many people that enable him to do that as well throughout his entire life. But, but do you imagine that if he really made a concerted effort to be mindful and sat down with some mindfulness teacher and, and went into a mindfulness meditation, do you think he, just on this one variable, would be able to create that gap between his emotions and his responses? I don't think it's his emotional intelligence that would prevent him from like being able to practice mindfulness. I think it's more like, for him, it would be maybe patience and values and maybe like ego. Like I get the sense that he doesn't want to be told you know, what needs to be done, or even just to take the time to actually, like, listen and reflect. You have to be motivated to do it. Yeah, and I think he just has, like, this, like, image, right? Like, a big part of, like, why his fame and popularity is because he built this image of just, like, this tough guy, you know, 
who, you know, just called the shots. Like, he wasn't brought to success because he was this very humble and reflective right, man, but right? It, like, I feel like there's kind of no motivation his... for him to change. But if it was just motivation holding him back, I think we would all agree that there, that this is not beyond the realm of possibility for him, right? If he were to be properly motivated, which I, I don't think there's any reason that he necessarily will never be motivated, right, or mm-hmm. could never be, right? So, so if that, so, motivation obviously isn't the only, might be a, a factor preventing someone currently from being mindful, but it's not necessarily preventing someone of a certain type from ever being mindful or, or using the practice. So, can we think of anything else that might be preventing? Someone, someone like that from achieving it? Or do you think that it, Trump properly motivated could be a very mindful, very successfully mindful individual? The issue with Trump is that he's been given things his entire life and not had to work for things. He started as a millionaire through his father and he continues to be a millionaire because he's just given stuff. Like, I don't, I don't believe that people who are just given things truly understand that you need to work for them. He doesn't work for anything in his presidency. I don't know if I totally agree with that. Well, well I mean, I would, I'd rather not get distracted. I don't mean to get political. I'm more just wondering. Um, I think the fact that children can learn at such a young age shows that there's this kind of like innate sense that like all people experience emotions. And I think, um, I know it's brought up at the lecture just a lot about like how you, you phrase it, the language that we use when we talk about emotions using language that shows that I am having an emotion or having a feeling rather than I am the feeling. Is there a cutoff age, basically, where there's no hope? (laughs) I don't think so. I mean, like, I feel like it would probably take a lot longer because you're so used to always being like, I am sad. But just emotions, like, everyone feels these ways. And I feel like the longer you live, you realize that everyone has these ups and downs, you know? And I think while you know maybe in the lowest of our lows we aren't able to acknowledge that always but i feel like for the most part when you're having a bad day you can acknowledge it'll probably get better at some point you know i have felt better and i have felt felt worse in this present moment there are people though who like actually medically cannot feel emotions like when we talk about like psychopaths and stuff like that or sociopaths. I think they can still feel emotions. I think, if anything, they just react differently to their emotions. Yes, yeah, so I was actually going to take that in, in that direction as well. I was going to say, I mean, assuming Trump is a psychopath. Well, I'll start by saying, I don't think that impulsivity is necessarily related to emotional responses. I, I think that you can be impulsive even as, for example, a psychopath, right? Although, not, not, although to, in my opinion, psychopaths don't not feel emotions. They just respond differently to the, the emotions that they experience. So I, I actually, based on my understanding of psychopathy, psychopaths are very good at being mindful because they, although they are typically more impulsive, which is, is contrary to that, when they experience emotions, they, they, they don't allow their emotions to directly correlate with actions. They, they're, they more experience jealousy or whatever it is and go, hmm, I am jealous. You know, how do I want to act now going forward? Where, that, where somebody else experience, experiencing jealousy would instantly just go to, would, would be predisposed to jealous behavior. So, so to do it with impulsivity, I, I don't think that's, that's because they need to you know, wrangle in their emotions. I think it's like, like what would that be? What causes impulsivity if not direct response to an emotion? I don't know. I feel like it is so emotionally driven. Like, I'm trying to think when I had impulsive behaviors, it was because I quickly was like, had an idea, had a thought, you know, had a feeling, was like, let's act. And it wasn't because I was really reflecting on it and 
you know, evaluating mm-hmm. or really looking at the present moment. I just, if anything, I feel like impulsivity is getting caught up in the moment. So I don't think that is very mindful. Well, impulsivity isn't mindful. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to figure out if there's other things that would cause impulsivity other than directly responding to an emotional response. I can't really think of one. I feel like they're, they are pretty tightly linked. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of and I have been impulsive, usually emotionally driven. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we so we would imagine then that a, a perfectly non-emotional person could not ne- like necessarily could not be an impulsive person. Like if, if you if you lacked emotional, maybe they might process, they they might have uh, have processed kind of what their next step would have been, even if it was like a quick decision. Maybe they would have considered the options ahead of time. Because I think you can have non-emotional impulses, right? Like. I wonder if maybe it's also because like sometimes we see people as impulsive, like we characterize behavior as impulsive when we realize that their behavior has like negative emotional consequences on other people. And mm. we say, you know, that's so impulsive. Why didn't you think about mm. that? So it's not really necessarily only about your own emotions, but how have you thought about how it'll affect others? So maybe that's where that connect happens. Like they're not necessarily reacting with their own emotion, but they're also not taking into consideration other people's emotions. So somebody who uh, sees a, a robbery in, in progress and they instantly act to subvert to subvert that robber or to, to uh, prevent that robber from uh, you know, doing the bad that he's doing. But it happens instantly, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's what's shown to happen with psychopaths is, is in situations of intense need for action where most people would be stunned the psychopath instantly responds with with their action not always necessarily a positive one so they might instantly acknowledge it's time to leave and just leave everyone behind but they might also instantly decide oh as soon as he pulls out that gun i know what i have to do is grab the gun attack the person right or you know wrestle them to the ground whatever so would that be considered an impulsive action because that's that that is still lacking you would think that's lacking the gap between the external action and the reaction. So it's not mindful, right? Because it's not like that happened, they paused, they thought, how would I like to act in this situation? Then they did it. It's still like an instantaneous action, but that, but without emotion. So would that be considered impulsivity? Maybe. I mean, it sounds like you... Like in that case, someone's reacting based on like certain values that they have that they've kind of like already pre, you know, negotiated with themselves. Um, but they may not be looking at all the different contextual factors, which may actually lead to better outcomes rather than just like grabbing the gun. Like, okay, let's look at the whole context, all the options. Okay, I, I, I don't want to take this off topic, so I feel we, we can come <laughs> back to like some kind of grounded discussion in, in mindfulness, but it's just an interesting uh, you know, s- subtopic. What, what were the other questions? <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> so I think that we should tackle the stoic philosophy and mindfulness one next whether or not there are similarities or differences between stoicism and mindfulness there's a lot of similarities i think emotional intelligence stoicism mindfulness they're all kind of caught in the same realm i think it's actually different i would say that mindfulness and stoicism are closer like emotional intelligence seems more like a vehicle and how this actually like leads to positive outcomes in a person's life whereas i think mindfulness is kind of like a like a integral part of stoicism and also like buddhism or secular buddhism um so mindfulness is now this kind of cool um way of kind of guiding practices throughout your daily life which can come from like a secular perspective whether that is kind of 
the Eastern or Western traditions of Hinduism and Stoicism. But I feel like living in the moment is a really big one in Stoicism and in mindfulness, as well as gratitude. The one thing that stood out for me, which was not similar between like traditional Stoic yeah. practices and mindfulness, was this. Um, but this practice where you're supposed to um, imagine the worst thing possible. Oh, right. right. Yeah. Or put yourself in discomfort, which I know we had an interesting talk mm-hmm. about when we had the Stoic lecture. So that doesn't actually come up as often in mindfulness. They're more like. Yeah. Because mindfulness, I mean, you're just focused on the present, right? Yeah. You're not focused on trying to figure out the future or imagining. Or preparing <laughs> for preparing the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? yeah, so that's kind of like the opposite, where where mindfulness is, is getting you away from that constant rumination about the future or past events and into the present moment. Um, stoicism, that's... Well, actually, no, was, no, that, no, was no. that Stoicism or, or was stoicism that... Stoicism isn't... That was rational and motive therapy, wasn't it? Or cognitive behavioral therapy. No, Stoicism has that. But Stoicism isn't trying to ruminate. It's trying to help you be more mindful of what really matters and trying to appreciate and be, like, grateful of what you have without holding on to it. Right, so, but, but that one practice is is a rumination about... I guess you're right, sorry, maybe rumination isn't the right word. It's it, But it's a, a strong focus on the worst thing that could happen. That's in and, and repeating that practice, right, mm-hmm. in stoicism, um, to prepare for when it actually happens. So so it, it's, it's preparing for the future, where mindfulness is trying to get you out of constantly thinking and preparing for events that aren't now. I think it's also, I don't think it's solely focused on preparing. I think it's more appreciating what you have in the moment and being okay to let go of that, but still being appreciative of what you have in that moment that you are in. Yeah, this is coming back to the, uh, uh, the same disagreement that we had in the previous discussion. Uh, so I, I don't think we should go there. <laughs> Down but, that um, if, if you want to see how that conversation winds up, go listen to our previous discussion on Stoicism. But yeah, it is, it, that is interesting, a, a good way of thinking about it. Instead of thinking about what's similar, think about what's different between Stoicism and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, so, so, so you would say that they, you wouldn't find that practice in mindfulness. Yeah, I, I read an interesting article, which we'll link in the in the notes, and it kind of went through stoicism, went through mindfulness, and also this idea of all these like secular practices, and also kind of tied humanism into it. So that was really interesting. Um, but some of the quotes that I thought that were really interesting from stoicism. So there's um, a quote by Epic, Epictetus. Um, Close enough. Okay. <laughs> no one can ever say those names. Um, men are disturbed not by things, but by the views that they take of them. So I thought that was, and then I feel like that's very much this mindfulness thing is you're not necessarily, you know, happy or upset by your, like, what is going on in your life, but how are you perceiving it and how are you um, moving with that? And then another one that I thought stuck out was the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. The happy man allows reason to fix the value of every condition of his existence. I, I read one quote on that was linked to mindfulness, and it seemed I seemed to think it was kind of the opposite of what you would think for mindfulness. But basically, uh, what it was saying, in essence, was the person a person who does not examine the moment and does not put those gaps between events and uh, and your actions is necessarily living an unhappy life. So I don't I don't agree with that quote, right? Because I, I think I think what, what the lecture was said was that happiness is it, it's a state of humanity that is going to exist at times for, and not exist at other times, right? And, and that you can't actually really increase your happiness through mindfulness necessarily. 
so much as you can you can increase you know your contentness with the way your life is going so so it, it seems strange to me that that, you, that there would be a link made between so, so they were saying that it's positive to make that gap or it's negative to make the gap well they, they were saying that someone who doesn't live mindfully cannot mm. be happy or is necessarily living an unhappy life which seemed very counter to uh to what the lecturer was speaking about and i don't think of mindfulness as like this this golden ticket to happiness but i also don't see it at, at like people who don't live mindful lives are necessarily happy. like i don't yeah i think yeah, they it's, could it's be a tool. to me it's a tool that you can use if you need it for certain situations or you're struggling with let's say trying to find happiness but I think that people who don't live mindfully could be more unhappy than somebody who does live mindfully because the whole idea is that you're limiting your reactions to situations. So you feel it, but then you don't stress on it for right. the next like 10 days. You mm -hmm. kind of let it go and then you can move on. Yeah. And I think moving on is the key to actually feeling or opening yourself up to more happiness coming in. Yeah. And you don't apply that judgment on certain situations or thoughts. and. I think it was brought up in a lecture. We have this tendency to, when we do apply judgment on something, tends to be negative. So to just go against that, it's really just to realize if you don't place a judgment on it, you're not going to force yourself down a negative rabbit hole. So that's definitely a way that mindfulness would decrease suffering. Um, and I mean, I guess by decreasing suffering, you're allowing yourself to get back to a state of being that could coincide with happiness. So during our conversation at the meeting, we also had talked about how mindfulness could be used for mind control. Well, someone, uh, someone postulated that it could be. Yeah, and it was very hotly debated. Uh, it wasn't so hotly debated. Um, I, I think the majority of people in attendance, including the lecturer herself, felt that mindfulness, if anything, was a good antidote to brainwashing. Where the brainwashing is it would be filling the gap between you know, experience and your reaction. So they would be teaching you every time you have this experience, impulsively react with this predetermined, pre-controlled, pre-inserted uh, action, right? So kind of like Pavlov's dog, like, example of brainwashing, where she feels that, that uh, practicing, uh, someone who is brainwashed practicing mindfulness would recreate that gap where they would get to think about the actions that they're doing and decide, are these the actions I would like to do or are these the actions I'm doing just because I've been brainwashed to do these actions? So so I kind of more agree with that. That was not how it was debated, though, at the oh, okay. meeting. It was more like, can you use mindfulness to mind control somebody? Right. Can you use mindfulness in a evil way? How? But I think I think you're totally <laughs> right that when the when the presenter was saying you create more of a gap, so instead of decreasing the gap of like action reaction, you're increasing the gap between action and reaction. So you're you're thinking about things, you're analyzing them before you react. So you are limiting the ability to be controlled by that action. So I feel like mind mind control definitely you know wouldn't coexist with mindfulness. However, I do believe that there are ways that mindfulness could be used by, uh, let's say, a government um, to attain some of its own ends. So, for example, and this was also brought up in the lecture, I feel like if you had a very mindful society, but one that was very tall, like a, a very able to tolerate 
uh, negative circumstances because mindfulness, uh, one of its large applications is helping people deal with suffering and helping people deal with pain and unwelcome circumstances out of their control. So let's say you have a government oppressing its people. Um, The people would be much less likely to revolt if they had mindfulness, which allowed them to be content in their current circumstances, where if they were constantly suffering that that oppressive regime, they, they would be more likely, on my view, to... Um, They're more incentivized to take action to exactly. change. Exactly. They're incentivized by the pain of their current circumstances to drive change in their government and their societies. And, and, and I think that example is kind of flushed out with unionizing in, in Eastern societies that are more mindful. Employ, it's, to complain is seen as a very negative attribute on a person. So, uh, and it's seen as a positive attribute to be able to endure suffering and hardship. So... Um, workers can be treated very unfavorably by their employers and they won't unionize the same way that is seen in Western civilization and they won't complain. Um, So so I I can see that as being a means of control. Don't you think, though, that with mindfulness you can develop a better cognitive understanding of your surroundings and therefore create that sort of way to unionize or to stand up against the government because you have that better cognitive understanding of the situation Um, because you're thinking about the situation and that's how you respond to it by thinking about it so so if the argument is that through mindful reflection you are able to increase your knowledge of your circumstances then yes i do believe that if, if you if you're able to come to the realization that you're being treated unfairly and that you and that one of your values is to be that you would like to be treated fairly, then perhaps gaining that knowledge could lead you to deciding to take action. However, um, so, so yeah, so in that, in that sense, being trained in mindfulness definitely could help you decide what you value and help you apply your efforts constructively. It, it, so, so for example, let's say instead of hating your boss or hating your job, you would hate, you, you, you would do some mindful meditation and you would realize that what you should actually be applying your efforts toward isn't, you know, getting back at your boss or your company, but it's, at, it's maybe at changing the larger systems that are enabling companies to do this to employees. I'm wondering whether we're just at, uh, applying like our own values on what people uh, would consider as um, suffering for, for, so let's give, go back to example of you know a, a foreign country where maybe workplace conditions are a little, are different than here in North America. You know, I I get a chance to you know travel a lot and kind of meet a lot of people. And when I talk to people about the differences between you know their governments and our governments here in North America, people are aware; they're fully self-aware that things are different in both countries. And the systems of governments are different, and the rules and laws in the workplace are different. They're fully aware of the differences and that there are differences. But they, I never really got the complaint that because they were different, one is bad versus the other. And people felt, because uh, sometimes I've encountered where people have realized things have improved than per- compared to decades ago. Mm-hmm. They're on a journey to improving. But the reason they are content with the way things are right now in their particular country is because it has improved and it's kind of moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. 
So it, it's not uh, they're using their mindfulness to then realize, I can accept this current situation, but they realize things have improved and they're fully aware of the differences and they just apply different value on, uh, because it has improved, I'm not going to revolt <laughs> against the company or the government. So do you think, I mean, that kind of links back to our patriotism lecture, where, so you think that because they feel that they are a member of this of this society that is improving at a rate that they find acceptable, they're going to be content with their circumstances being slightly worse than uh, the circumstances But they don't of think people. it's worse. That's, that, that's maybe my They point. don't actually it's think different. it's worse. They see it as different. They don't, they don't value think it's worse. as good and bad. Yeah. They just, which is actually very mindful. It is very mindful. seeing good and bad, just seeing this is different, but then also acknowledging we are on a good trajectory. If things change and reverse back, then I'm assuming they'd be like, no. Oh, absolutely. Like, no, for no, sure, no. if things reverse back, they would not be happy. Yeah. Right. So that, that kind of, uh, I, I think that kind of supports my initial assumption of how being mindful of your circumstances leads to acceptance of potentially objectively uh, worse situations. Uh, I realize that it, that it is kind of a subjective thing, worse, yeah. but 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 yeah. I mean, it, let's say that they weren't mindful about the fact that things were simply different, and, and they were ruminating on the idea, as a non-mindful person might, that oh, over in Western civilization, things are so much better. You know, you know, may, that you would think would would make somebody want to change their civilization. I don't know if people with like a really negative outlook on stuff though are actually really motivated. I think people are generally more motivated when they see progress and they see support and they see something that needs to change, but they see like a momentum and energy behind it. So I would think that individuals who can kind of acknowledge, okay, things weren't that great in the past, they're on a better sense now would be more motivated than someone who's just like, this place is awful, ah, I need to change it, you know? Like, I don't know if I agree, because I think the trend that we're seeing in the States right now is very much the opposite of, so with women specifically running for positions in the States, you see a higher increase of women running for positions when you have these negative, I don't want to say negative politicians, but... Uh, negative circumstances. Negative circumstances. So things like, because uh, I know that they have tracked how many women are applying mm -hmm. for positions. And right now, there are more women applying for positions because of what's happening. Are they doing it because of what's happening or because they realize that this is the time, there's momentum, there's a lot of support for women to enter those roles? I think it's because it's what's happening. Because how can you know that women are applying for roles if, do you know... Well, no, there is a lot of support currently. So I, I, I kind of agree with Selena in, in this example that, you know, there's a there, obviously there might be some of both factors contributing, but but I mean, why would they run if they felt their society wasn't going to, they had zero chance of being voted for, right? I mean, I mean, I, I think that you would, that once society starts being more open to the idea of a female politician or female president. Yeah, because there have been, you know, sexist comments being made about female politicians for years. It's not like suddenly there's been more sexist comments. People are just becoming a little bit more frustrated with the comments and also feeling that like, no, we can make a change and feeling more empowered rather than being more upset by them, I would think. I do still disagree with your initial statement on the subject that, um, that it's not negative circumstances that cause people to revolt. It's seeing the potential for improvement. Um, obviously, obviously seeing, like believing it's not a losing battle is helpful. Um, you know, it's, it's a staying motivated in, in your cause. But I, I think 
I, I mean, from my understanding, throughout history, when circumstances were really bad, politicians and, and kings and whatnot were concerned that there would be a revolt, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if you had like large standing armies with nothing to do. So the biggest thing that they would do to prevent revolt is distract the people with something else to funnel that anger, that animosity, that injustice toward, right? So, oh, look at your neighbor. Wouldn't things be so much better if we just had that extra corn or, right? So let them eat cake. <laughs> right. So so they they get frustrated. So so what they do is is they just simply redirect that anger. So I think mindfulness definitely could contribute positively and negatively toward getting people out of those situations because on one side of the coin it would likely reduce the suffering they're feeling and reduce their motivation to want to revolt. But on the other coin, it would it would give them kind of like a defense mechanism against being distracted being distracted by false enemies. Mm -hmm. Right? So they could think more clearly instead of being like, oh I'm angry and then in, in intuitively or instinctively just jumping to and it's, I've been told it's my neighbor's fault, therefore it's my neighbor's fault. They would think, I'm angry. And they think, why am I having an anger? You know, why am I feeling upset? Is it really because of my neighbor or is it because of the current government, right? So, so I, th I, think, I think both sides of the coin can be true. But overall, that's still positive, right? Because if, if, they're, if they're happier and not revolting, I don't really see a problem with that too much. And, and if, if they are revolting, at least they would be revolting for closer to the right reasons. It's only positive depending on their perspective. Definitely from people in a position of power, if they can right. <laughs> keep people occupied, <laughs> right. it's great. Everything, there's no war, everyone's generally happy. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe in reality, uh, if you look at it objectively, maybe it's not that great. Are there any other topics we want, we want to touch on regarding uh, mindfulness? You mentioned something on the drive over here. Mm -hmm. You were talking about consumerism, capitalism. Talking about capitalism. Right. Do you, you want me to take No, that? yeah. Well, listen, because we weren't yeah. in the car. Okay. <laughs> you weren't in the car. So, so uh, in the lecture, it was mentioned that uh, capitalism is preying on on our rumination. Uh, so on our constantly thinking about, you know, the things we don't have, the things our neighbors have that we would want, or injustices or in in inequities in our society that drive us to want to spend. And, I mean, so it's interesting how a system... That has that is incentivized to make money is uh, is is preying on one of our negative anti mindful qualities. But I was wondering if we had different incentives and systems with incentives that would drive businesses to try and expand on and and uh, make an example of our positive aspects of humanity, like our caring for one another and all of that. I, I wonder what a properly incentivized capitalistic society could do for our everyday experience if more positive elements of human nature were being exploited or being... I'm going to take a side note. So, did some Googling, and apparently the industry of mindfulness is a $1.1 billion industry. <laughs> is this like books and... It's, it's apps, it's books, yeah. it's classes, it's programs, like it's everything. And the hilarious thing is that people are, you know, like people want to still be happy. People want to be successful. So there's lots of like industries and companies that are actually kind of buying into the, the market of mindfulness to again sell this idea of you can be happier with mindfulness, which is kind of just going along this mm. like initial like 
They're still preying on our need to well, be happy. It's just a little bit redirected, but they're still selling it to us, which I just thought well, was well, really... Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's a true sale of mindfulness. If, if what they're selling people is buy our book and you'll be happier. I, I mean, I mean, is that really the goal of mindfulness is just to make us all happy all the time? I, I thought that wasn't the goal, right? Where So if they're selling it as a placebo to try and like make us happy but there have been you know there have been studies to show that you know mindfulness and emotional intelligence have greater positive affect lower negative affect and greater life satisfaction okay so they're selling those statistics and like those are desirable things like why wouldn't you want those so that's not a bad thing so 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 i guess in a capitalist structure if you can show that by teaching people how to be happier and more mindful you can make money then that's what will be done and so presumably that's going to have positive effects if you have a bunch more mindful people. I, I, I don't have any particular animosity against capitalism. The issue is, though, when you get into the quacks who come in. Right. Who say, this is mindfulness. Also buy this crystal that costs like $2 million. And then get this, do this seminar. And then yeah, when yeah. people keep failing at this mindfulness, mm-hmm. they're going to keep buying mindfulness and not getting anywhere. So this is where we got to apply skeptic uh, skepticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we, uh, as humanists, right, we talk about the woo of <laughs> trying to believe in some magical thing that can uh, create happiness. It's kind of pairing um, some logic with mm-hmm. uh, mindfulness, I think, would be beneficial for most people. One, uh, I actually recently was attempted to be preyed upon by one of these uh, mindfulness, you know, sham, you know, communities. I can't actually remember the name of it currently, although I really should. Was but, it a Lenin community or? Uh, no, so it, it's, it's more global. It's not community. It's a global organization that sells its program to self-betterment. And so it does certainly include a lot of, and, and it is effective for a lot of people. Scientology? Um, no, no, no. I, I forget the name of it. Anyway, the name is not, not so important. But the point is the organization, what it would do is it would, it, it had a program that it would take you through. And it was very immersive. And, and it was it was a lot of lectures and, and coming together. And, and, and part of it, a core of it was mindfulness and teaching you to be in the present moment to, you know, to, to think about what you really want and how you're living your life and and uh, and all of that. The only issue is because it's trying to market itself. Is is it starts to creep in some additional things to the program, such as you can't achieve this success without our program, right? Mm-hmm. So so it it would try and make you kind of like help helpless without their program, yeah. right? So so that's the issue. I don't know that you could ever get like a purely positive system out of a capitalist structure because it'll always be easier to make money by just adding in the stuff that helps you make money and what are the odds that those are all going to perfectly align with the truth and they're always in competition with each other as well right so you've got you know 20 different mindfulness programs but you want yours to be the best because you want people to purchase yours and partake in yours it's kind of like religion there's so many that are actually also (laughs) free which is the hilarious thing i mean i think the biggest mistake that people do with mindfulness is the fact that it takes patience and effort and a lot of people want a quick fix right and that's not what mindfulness is i have tried multiple times to do mindfulness try and participate in mindfulness studies try and do an online self-directed mindfulness course so far i've always failed because i personally feel like i don't have the time for it which is ironic because the whole point is that it's supposed to like help you with your stressed life so i'm still working on it (laughs) your stress 
from trying to Yeah, eventually <laughs> I actually course. had to quit <laughs> mindfulness because I found that it was just another well, thing in my yeah. daily life which I couldn't, I felt. Like part I part of mindfulness, I thought, was was you weren't supposed to be trying to achieve something through it, right? It's not supposed to be like a goal-oriented process where you're but sitting down like, I want to achieve this. No, but you do need to make the time for it. And eventually it became a chore of, when do I fit in five minutes? Okay. Which is really depressing and really unrealistic. I mean, everyone has five minutes. Doesn't it at some point become automatic, though? If you make it a habit. You have to make it a habit. I don't know if I'm just really good at it or, like, I've just been practicing it. I haven't... I don't specifically practice mindfulness, but I always try and, whenever I'm in a situation, step back from that situation and take a few breaths and process why I'm feeling like I want to react some way and decide whether it's a good way to react. I don't... I'm not always successful, but, like, Mm -hmm. that's something I always try to do in my daily life even before I knew what mindfulness was. Yeah. But so, like, it's to the point where it's automatic that if something happens, like if I'm driving on the road and somebody cuts me off, I automatically kind of take a step back and, and then start thinking about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm with you on that. For me, I, I don't practice it, mm-hmm. like, on a daily basis. It's really situational. Like, if something does come up, I, I need to kind of just process it without reacting to it immediately. And for me, it was it was more of a learned behavior. Like, I didn't really kind of come into this naturally. Uh, It was kind of learned through either reading or uh, through other people who have gone through, you know, difficult times. And so I think some people probably can pick it up naturally. And But it's probably helpful that we have, you know, either these free resources online. But I can understand how you would feel frustrated with it if you feel like you're constantly trying to be mindful yeah. right. versus just like letting it happen naturally yeah. yeah i guess there's the difference between doing the situational and trying to actually incorporate like some time specifically for reflection there's another uh, another branch of this which i think we could touch on i'm not sure how we're doing on time but um but the, the other branch would be uh religion and mindfulness and you know are there correlations between mindfulness practice and its prevalence recently in society and uh, the decline in religiosity and and how is mindfulness as a uh, an alternative to uh, religion because because I think I think and this touches on humanist you know it's a very humanist topic because I think part of what humanism is is trying to find a secular replacement for a lot of the value that religion produces in society so that way we can separate that value out from Mm -hmm. the other things um, so how, how do you guys feel about mindfulness as an alternative to religious spirituality and religious practice? Yeah. I mean, uh, going back to example, like raining, I can imagine someone who is religious to kind of view, oh, it's raining. God is, I don't know, <laughs> uh, watering the plants or something like that. Sorry. Yeah. Or you can or, say like if it's raining, like, or if it's your wedding day and you're, you pray, no rain, yeah. please God, yeah. please don't rain on my wedding day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, but they would they would get find comfort in that by saying, oh well, it's all happening for a reason, exactly. or, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 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 it it could make you okay with the things like death, right? Like, well, they could be freaking about what happens when they die, but if they just they turn to religion, they'll feel better about it. Or if they turn to mindfulness, maybe they can also feel better about it. It's I feel like mindfulness allows you to take more control um, over your your actions versus religion where you're saying oh god controls this Mm. it's out of my control i can't do anything about it yeah and i think having more control and more more responsibility over yourself and your actions is only a good thing i think that giving that control away giving away that responsibility is is really a negative thing 
through our culture. But sometimes, I mean, when there are certain things out of our control, wouldn't we want to give that away as well? So I get how, like, if you're if if something because the whole idea of uh, mindfulness is that if something's out of your control, you let it go. But religion does that too in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, that's that's what I mean. That's that's what I'm saying. But then you have to control your own actions. You have to decide to let it go or to act in a certain way. I feel like it gives away responsibility versus taking responsibility. Do, do you think mindfulness would be taking response? response? I, I, okay, so in, in the concept of, of, or for the example of letting go of things that are out of your control, if it's out of your control, why would you take responsibility on either mindfulness or the religious side? Yeah, I don't think you would take responsibility. You would literally say either, you know, God has a plan or basically there is no plan. It just happened. But then from there you can say, oh, okay, I'm going to make my own plan. Yeah. Versus mm, like, yeah. God's okay. going to take me where I need to go. Right. Okay. I'm not going to study, and I know that, you know, God will take care of me. You know? I don't know God if it works in that guide context. Me. Yeah. Guide me to an A+. Plus. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, seriously, people people will, will get failing grades, and then and then they'll, they'll go, well, why did I get such bad grades? I was such a good person. You know, why did I fail? Why did God allow me to fail this? Like, why did I fail my exam? You know, I've, I've been so good. You know, I like by teaching them that by being a good person, good things will happen to you. I think it really deludes them and prevents them from being effective. Well, not everybody's going to take it literally, but some people certainly do. Like uh, like a lot of Mormons I know, um, they're they're taught that by being a good person, that's really all you have to do, and by paying your tithes, you know, then then good things will happen to you. So when bad stuff happens or when they get a divorce, instead of thinking what happened in my actual life to cause this, they question God, what they did wrong. Like like you know, was it because I was it because I stole that chocolate bar? You know, like, like these were really divorced from reality. Where I guess mindfulness gets all of the positive, you know, coping strat like mechanisms out of it, but without those negative implications. Mm-hmm. No, I can agree with that. Yeah, there's a bunch of people studying around us right now, and I feel like telling them, God's not going to help you. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I thought you were going to say, I feel like telling them, God has a plan for you. Don't no, study. No, yeah. These people <laughs> Don't worry know. about it. The people studying, they already know that. We should go to the FOCO people, the yeah. people partying right now and say, hey, listen, you better study because God's not helping you on this one. <laughs> uh, Do you want to cover just the last question that we were also? Yeah, I think it's a good way to wrap everything up with by providing some mindful practices. So I looked into, I was on the mindful.org website, which we will link to in our notes, and they had a bunch of different practices that you could do. So there were some everyday ones, but our specific question was to help with anxiety and panic attacks. So I can give you an everyday one, and then we'll follow up with a specific panic attack. All right. So our first one is the mindful wake up, which is setting an intention for your day. So when you wake up, you sit up in bed in a relaxed posture, close your eyes and connect with the sensations of your body. And then taking some deep breaths through your nose and out through your mouth, uh, settle into your own rhythm and notice how you're breathing. Notice the rise and fall of your chest. And then you should ask yourself, what is my intention for today? So how, ask yourself things like, how might I show up today to have the best impact? What quality do I want to strengthen and develop? What do I need to take care, better care of myself? Uh, Those sorts of questions. How might I be fulfilled and connected today? 
And so then you set your own intention for the day. It could be it could be anything. It could be today I will eat healthy meals to nourish my body or today I will be patient with others. It doesn't have to be specific, but just a quality that you want to maybe work on throughout your day. And then you kind of check in with yourself as your day goes on. So maybe when you're sitting down for lunch, you kind of ask yourself, okay, I had this moment today with a coworker. How did I handle that? How could I handle that in the future? Did I you know, meet my intention for the day? Am I still nourishing my body? Am I still being patient with others? To me, that intention and basically almost like setting an agenda for the day, right? This is what I'm going to focus on uh, accomplishing. Sets the right goal rather than having that person uh, ruminate in the unknown of what am I doing? And then thoughts flow into your head and not knowing how to kind of deal with those thoughts and really focus on a particular goal to accomplish. But I like how the goal is more like based on characteristics that you mm-hmm. want to build in yourself rather than just, I need do, to go grocery yeah. shopping and do my dishes and do that paper mm-hmm. that I've been putting off, right? Like it's more of like these like characteristics that you're trying to build in yourself. And I think that is kind of make more mindful to like the human experience rather than the, the day-to-day life that we get caught up in. And I think that you can get more stressed out by making that laundry list of, I need to do this, this, and this today. And if you don't get it done, then you failed yourself or something like Mm -hmm. that. Whereas mindfulness is knowing that things come up and and your day changes and all of these things are happening. And it's about how you're reacting to that versus if you've successfully completed your list. Mm -hmm. So if we move into specifically panic attacks and anxiety, there is a separate practice that you could do for that. So the first thing to do is to investigate. You want to start asking yourself questions. Is it really true? And many of our thoughts are not facts, they're judgments. So you need to really look at what are the facts. In this case, you need to be very scientific about it, very logical, and ask yourself, am I okay right now? Because anxiety often has to do with the future, and asking yourself how you are right now helps you focus on the present versus thinking about what's happening in the future or what has just happened. Ask yourself how you are right now. From that, you shift into taking some deep breaths. Taking yourself to something physical really helps you to stop focusing on judgments and really ground yourself. And you want to also connect to the senses. So after you're taking some deep breaths, you can look around you uh, using your sight. What do you see? Uh, Using your hearing, what do you hear? What do you taste? What do you feel or touch? And describe those sensations. So saying... I see a wooden desk, it has some grains in it, and it has a flowing motion of color, that sort of thing. Start to, to describe it without judgments, not saying, oh, this desk is has some brown, gross lines in it. You know, you don't want to make judgments on what you see. And then the last part is to visualize the release of those anxious feelings. So pretending like your anxious feelings are a dark cloud inside of you. So you breathe in, and then when you breathe out, all of that cloud is coming out of you and visualizing in your head that it is exiting your body and floating away. And picture it happening like in reality. So kind of like visualizing it happening. Mm-hmm. And, and that is a process that is said to help you with either panic attacks or anxiety. 
And I personally have been through panic attacks and it is very hard to get to that spot of relaxing and, and being, being able to even start the mindful experience of asking yourself questions and focusing on breathing and that sort of thing. But that's something that you really need to work on if you are prone to anxiety attacks. Every time I've had an anxiety attack, I've woken up into it. So it's been horrifying, to say the least. But I've always been able to eventually step back. The first time I had one, I didn't know what was happening. So I thought I needed to go to the hospital and everything just kept escalating. But then the second time it happened, I was like, okay, you need to do this. You need to focus on this. And and eventually you just kind of get better at it. I I heard kind of like physical touching of like an object Mm. and kind of... uh, really focusing on the texture and how it feels really helps to kind of go around. So I don't know, mm-hmm. is that some of the technique that people use just to make sure they feel and fully kind of absorb the tactile nature of whatever they're touching? Mm-hmm. As a teacher, like I have some, I've occasionally had the experience of going into the special education rooms where mm-hmm. you have students who are more prone to anxiety and don't have that filter and that sort of thing. And they have a lot of tactile things in the room for students to go to when they're stressed out. Um, And they really employ a lot of these mindfulness techniques of deep breaths before they react and that sort of thing. It's very interesting. So I think that's it. So good luck with your mindfulness if you do try it. There's a couple of ways. If you wanted more examples of different ways that you can try mindfulness in your life, I highly recommend the mindful.org website it has a lot of great articles it has a lot of great practical ways to put mindfulness in your life all right so i think we can finish up with some announcements so our next lecture is wednesday october 10th the speaker is tony martin and the topic is my american life if you've never met tony he is one of our members he is a fabulous human being he did come out to our movie night when we had the movie night on the movie the 13th about racial discrimination in the um, penitentiary system. Uh, He has a great perspective. He's lived through some of the racial riots and he's just amazing. So definitely come on out to that one. It's gonna be amazing. Uh, And as always, it's at the Central Library at 7 p.m. And so this month we are actually going to have an after meeting discussion. It's not going to be held that night. It will be held on Sunday, October 14th. I will release more details through Facebook and an email, which will be sent out. It's going to be at one of our members' house, and we're just going to meet and have some cookies and some juice and talk about more political things. I'm very excited for this next lecture. I can become more political. Yes. (laughs) Is Trump going to be in the topic? I believe so. (laughs) And especially with what's happening in the States right now, it'll be very interesting. I think we're going to get very heated in our... In our next podcast uh, oh, discussion. So I can't bring my mega hat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. no mega hats allowed. <laughs> and then uh, also just a reminder to follow us on Facebook. We are the Hala Members and Friends group. So follow us on there. It's a private group. So if you display your uh, opinions about humanism, you don't have to worry about your second aunt or whoever finding out who... Who doesn't approve? And also follow us on Instagram at Humanist London. Cool. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yep. Thanks so much. We'll check you guys next time. Bye. Cheers. <laughs>
I'm currently Googling to see if I can find that quote in context and, and who's, who said it. But we'll do you wait. want us to wait? <laughs> no, 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 carry on. This makes yeah. great podcasting. We 